Hello everyone, Brian Brown here. The episode that I've got for you today is taken from our recent Imagination Redeemed conference. The entire conference video is available at EnselmSociety.org. If you're already a member, you can head over there to watch all the sessions if you were uh, not able to make the event or if you were, but you want to see the breakouts that you missed. Um, so it's available for free to Anselm members. So I highly encourage you to join as a member. If you're not a member though, you can head over to ImaginationRedeemed.com and buy a standalone ticket to watch the videos. So the session I've got for you today is from our old friend, Glenn Powell. Uh, we asked Glenn to talk about how time and specifically the past is treated in scripture. The Bible's filled with time because God's revelation is always historical. It's always this story of moments old and new. God reveals who he is and what he's doing within an ongoing story, an our ongoing time. The movement of the biblical narrative is always toward God entering into our time more and more. It's a story of restoration in which, as T.S. Eliot put it, only through time, time is conquered. I hope you enjoy this session. Thank you for coming. My name is Glenn Powell. Uh, my career was in Bible publishing. I worked for InterVarsity before that. Uh, I grew up in Denver, Colorado. Went to school at Calvin University and Seminary in, uh, yeah, in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, and then came back to Colorado, which is my, always my real home. I live up in Palmer Lake, up the road. So um, I spent a lot of my life trying to get people to read the Bible, right? I mean, luckily for me, you don't have to be smart to sell Bibles. It's the best-selling book every single year, right? Think about that, publishers dream. But every year, a, the Bible is at the top of the list. The trick is getting people to read this book, right? I used, there used to be a group called the um, Christian Booksellers Association. I used to go to their summer events. Someone did research once and said that 71% of all Bibles purchased were given as gifts, not to be used by the people who were buying them. So I think people, you know, buying gifts for graduates, wives hoping their husbands will become Bible readers. Um, women were the, by far the largest purchasers of Bibles. And so where I worked at the time was the International Bible Society, now become Biblica. And we were publishing the NIV, best-selling English language Bible in the world. And the more I read the research, the more distressed I became about Bible reading, and therefore everything that goes with that, like actually knowing the content of the Bible in depth, right? I mean, really knowing it so that you can then live it. That's the connection we're looking for, reading the Bible well so we can live the Bible well. I spent a lot of that time trying to convince people of the specific content of the story, and oftentimes in regard to place. I think we've misnamed our future by calling it heaven. The scriptures never do that. Never once is there a place where heaven is the name of our eternal state. Interesting, I mean, there is a place called heaven. It is God's realm, but the future is always identified some other way. A new heaven and a new earth, the restoration of all things, the age to come, the reconciliation of all things through the blood of Christ and the opening hymn to Christ 
in Colossians. It has lots of different names, but never is it heaven. So I was trying to help people understand that God is always working to redeem this creation. It was a big part of my project in the notes that I wrote in the introductions to the NIV Bibles that we sold, I'm always trying to get people to get the story straight. And in preparing for this conference this year, I realized the same thing kind of needs to be done with time. There's a whole part of our tradition that kind of pits time against eternity and says time, if place is part of the problem, I mean, some of, some of us, some of our traditions have said the goal of Christian salvation is to escape this bad place and go to a better place, right? My wife died a year ago, and people would say she's in a better place. And, and I'm, I'm learning to rebel against that language because what God is working for is the restoration, the reunification of heaven and earth, God's realm and our realm together. Right, so new creation is the language we should use. And I think given the, the tradition of the word heaven in our, in our history, heaven is, even if you use the word correctly, like Randy Alcorn does in his book on heaven, um, it's still misleading for most people because they don't think of it in terms of new creation. They think of the word heaven as a different place and, and they read passages like 2 Peter 3 and they assume that this place is going to be burned up. It's a misreading of that passage, which is another seminar for another day. Um, it's more like the fire of metallurgy, right? Of purification of something to, so that the real earth, the real creation can be found. And, and it's not a burning of annihilation. So we'll set that aside for now. But I think the same thing is true about time. I mean, part of our traditions have used language like in a mistranslation of Revelation 6, a place where time will be no more, right? Or, or that it's an escape from time into God's eternity. So we're gonna be looking at the role of time briefly. We don't have a lot of time, although <laughs> I, I'm in a book club called The Ents, and we've been meeting for 20 years every Friday morning. And I always tell them, you know, we're, we're The Ents because we read books like super slowly. If we get through, a, if we get through one page, on one session, that's like moving like as fast as elves for us, <laughs> right? So we're, we're slow reading, but I always tell them, look, we have all the time in the world. We have this age and the age to come. Like there's no rush in this, this book club. So we're gonna look at the role of time in the Bible and I'm gonna have eight propositions that I think are really just like scratching the surface of the way the Bible thinks about time. Um, I mean, it's actually, once you start looking into it, it's a big, hairy deal, right? I mean, promises, story, all these things depend on time to happen. I was talking with Terry Moon the other day, and I said, you know, music depends on time, right? If you take away time, right, what do you have left when you think of things like story or music? I mean, there's so many things that are dependent on sequence of events and something going somewhere. So we're gonna look at those again. Because of our time constraints, we'll try to do it quickly. I'll just begin by saying, God never asks us to leave time and place to be with him. He never says you have to escape the home he created for us, which combines 
And, and physics, contemporary physics confirms this. Time and matter, they're like, they're like interwoven with each other. So they, they go together in God's creation. I'm not a physicist. Um, I'm not gonna get into metaphysical things about time or relativity about time. If you wanna read a book by a physicist who's also an Anglican priest, I would recommend John Polkinghorne's book, The God of Hope and the End of the World. It's really wonderful by somebody who really knows the physics, but is also knows the Christian tradition and is kind of bringing both perspectives to bear. That's a wonderful little book. So number one proposition, the Bible is a story full of time because it is a creation story, right? It's the very fact that it's a creation story that means it has to be full of time if it's gonna to continue to be about that creation. At the beginning of the story, we read in Hebrew, the earth was tohu wa bohu. It was formless and it was empty. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but the days of creation actually match those two words. The first three days are all about attacking formlessness. God forms the world in the first three days. And the next three days are all about attacking emptiness or the void. In the next three days, God fills the spaces he created on the first three days with the appropriate elements of creation for those spaces. So the lights, the plants, the animals and humans, they fit into the spaces that he made on the first three days. So what the original creation story is, is actually a battle story. I think it's a, a, the story of God's battle against chaos, right? The world was nothing, the world was there when the Bible begins, but it was chaos. It was formless, it was empty, it was the void, and God goes after it and he pushes chaos aside. What's really interesting is that he didn't completely eliminate it because chaos is now in the rest of the Bible story at the boundaries of creation. And if things go wrong, the chaos can come back. If you ever read Jeremiah chapter four, right? Human evil undoes the creation. And he kind of goes through the days of creation in reverse and says, Israel, when you sin, you are undoing the world I made and chaos is created back so that at the end, there's no light, there's no life, and we're back to where we started. That's how human interaction like, has to be done well for God's world to continue the way God intended it. But time is built into the story right at the beginning. And then I'll give you one other piece of uh, Hebrew and then we're done with that. Um, there's a neat little book by Greg Mobley called the, something about God like, and the, the chaos monsters. I forget the exact title. But he's the one who says, you know this little element of Hebrew syntax called the wa consecutive, which is we always translate as and then, and then. All the stories of the Bible are built on this and then that. And what the wa consecutive does it also is another tool for God against the chaos. So linear sequence, that is time. When, when a story is in one place and it moves to another place and then it goes to another place and this continues throughout the scriptures, God is pushing back the chaos that says, my experience is just this mass, undifferentiated, like sensory input. 
Story is what is a tool, the primary biblical tool against chaos. Story. Story makes sense of what we're going through, even when it's the worst. Right? When the stories are the worst, it's still the way we understand the worst in light of God's promises, in light of the future that God has for us, that's what defeats chaos. That's why grief does not just descend into pure chaos if, if we do grief in the light of our faith. So the Bible is a story full of time because it is a creation story. The options in the ancient world were, some people, we talked about this briefly last night, right? It was mentioned that the creation story doesn't use the word perfect. It's really interesting that the world before sin even is, enters the story. Like God doesn't say it was perfect, which is more of a Greek kind of idea about perfection like, implies like something is static, right? If something is perfect, like if you introduce change, it seems like that would be a, like the only place to go when you're at perfection is down. Right? It's interesting to me that the creation story doesn't say and it was perfect. It says it was good. Good means that there's still things to be done. And at the very end, he still doesn't use the word perfect. At the very end, when it's all done, God surveys what he did. It says very good. Now that's a place I want to be because that's a place where there's still something to do. Right? That's where humans can do things in the world because it's a good world. It's the world God wanted for us. It's the home he made for us. But there's all kinds of things to do with that world. And that's where the story of the Bible takes off. The other option in the ancient world, which Thomas Cahill talks about in his book, The Gift of the Jews, which is another great, like not too long of a book to read. But he says, look, across the ancient world, all the cultures were based on the idea of the wheel. The great circle, Right? That's why there were so many fertility cults in the religions of the ancient world, because the, the story of life is just the story of birth and life and death. And then your death, you become food for new life. And it goes around. And there is time, but the time isn't going anywhere. The, the, the wheel just keeps going around. Right? We have these, these like sensual fertility like you know, rituals in order to prod the gods into releasing the rain, letting the earth be fertile again. And it was all about continuing the cycle. There was no sense of a story going anywhere. Um, Thomas Cahill says, you know what's said about the stories of the ancient Sumerians? They start in the middle and they end in the middle. They don't really go anywhere. And he says, it's the Jews who gave us the real first stories. Stories that have a future that is different than the wheel, than the eternal circle, right? Which is in, it's in like Disney films, like The Lion King, right? It's all about the wheel and the circle just going around and around and around. The Jews said, no, the story starts here. There's a creation, there's a great rebellion. And now God is working in the story to bring the story back to a good story where there's not the, an escape from time and place but time and place being what it's supposed to be. Number two, the Bible is a story full of time. Therefore, God makes promises about the future. I think the best story about this, am I allowed to move or does that mess you up? Okay. 
It helps me to move so I don't faint or fall over or something. The best story in the Bible about God being serious about promises is in Genesis 15, right? I think on your notes it's wrong. It says self-imprecatory oath. It's self-maledictory oaths. So God has this weird ancient cultural like treaty promise like episode with Abraham. And Abraham is talking to God and he says, God, I, I know I believe you. I, I traveled here, I, I trust you. However, in case you haven't noticed, I don't have any children and one of my servants is gonna be my heir and I don't really understand how I'm gonna be a blessing to the nations if I don't even have a family that's gonna inherit my stuff. So like, how does this work? And God says, go get some animals. Cut them in half. Lay the halves opposite each other. And we know from other cultural material at that time, this was not the only time, this was a thing in the ancient world to, to make these self-maledictory oaths. And then this flaming pot passes through the animals. And what God is saying is that, look Abraham, if I don't keep my promises to you, let me become like these animals. My presence passes between them. So I will cut myself in half and die if I don't keep my word to you. Wow. A deity who makes self-maledictory oaths to harm himself is a God who is serious about time. He's serious about promises. And the story hinges on believing those promises even when you can't see that they're coming true. And in fact, sometimes you can't even see a path in which they will come true. Like, we have to go to God, and we're gonna talk about this in a moment when we talk about the Psalms, where the, the Bible, I think, gives us a different piety than what we often inherit, which is a piety that says you don't talk hard to God, right? You just are always nice to God, right? I mean, there's this, and I'm like, wait, where did this come from? Because I'm reading the Psalms, and I'm like, they are talking back to God. And to us, it seems disrespectful, but I think it's like real relationship, right? It's like a marriage where there's never a disagreement. That's Christian like piety. Like don't ever disagree with God or question God. I'm like, do you wanna go like visit somebody and watch a marriage where there's never anything to talk about other than I love you and I praise you and I wanna do whatever you want? Right? What marriage is like that? That's not authentic relationship. And what the Bible gives us is the metaphor of this being a marriage relationship with God, but it's an authentic relationship. And actually the Psalms of Lament, which I used to think they were just songs about sadness. But when you really read them, they come into two categories. One is Psalms of like penance. You know, we're, we're sorry, God, for what we've done. The others are unmistakably psalms of protest. And I think it's the protest psalms of lament that we have written out of our script. We don't do that. And I have never, ever been in a church service. I've been going to church since I was baptized when I was three months old, right? I have, and I don't remember all the early services, granted, <laughs> but I have never been in a church service where I remember anybody like talking to God like the Psalms of protest, which are right in the songbook. It was Israel's songbook in the Bible. I'm like, we have all the permission we need 
to be honest with God about what we see. And it doesn't mean we don't trust or we don't have hope. What it means is we're in this moment and God wants us. God wants us to be honest about what we're experiencing now because we don't see the way out. The Bible is a story full of time, therefore God makes promises about the future. That's the kind of story it is. Number three, the Bible is a story full of time, therefore it is a story of redemptive movement. Not everything gets fixed at once. That's not real history. That's not real life. Nothing, nothing in the real world gets fixed all at once. Right? I mean, it's, it's a process. And I think this is where people these days are getting all hung up. If you're on social media and you're hearing all these attacks on the Bible, which I have to pay attention to because I publish Bibles, and it's all about patriarchy and slavery and violence, and who could live by this book? It's ridiculous, right? And I'm like, these people have never heard of the concept of redemptive movement. And so there's two points about that. First of all, Relative to the cultures around them, the laws of Israel based, absolutely, I mean, let's be real. Was, this was in an ancient Near Eastern culture. You think they're magically gonna be like Christian ethics, right? God doesn't like jump to the end. He starts where people are. So the patriarchy that's in the Torah is better than the patriarchy that's in the cultures that surround Israel. The laws on slavery, I mean, like, people are like, wait, why is there slavery in the Bible, right? There's this great debate in the Civil War between the Christians about whether the Bible supports or is against slavery. And if your idea of reading the Bible is to, like, count verses, right? One of my, if people know me, like, my soapbox is, like, chapters and verses have got to go, right? They are added in the, like, the first chapter and verse Bibles in the 16th century. Are you kidding me? So the church didn't even have a Bible with chapters and verses. Like this like came late and it makes us read the Bible out of context. And it makes us think that every little verse is a standalone piece of spiritual truth, right? This is not what the authors intended. But if you read the Bible that way, if you add up verses that like support slavery, like you're killing the people who are trying to defend anti-slavery like ideas from the Bible. Tell me how many verses in the Bible are against slavery. Right? If you're gonna get to a position that says owning another human being isn't the right thing to do in God's world, you, the only way to get there is to have a theology of redemptive movement. I mean, there's one little book, a little book that nobody reads, right? Philemon. Like, who reads that book? Like, you know, it's like the Reformation. It's like Philemon. No, Romans, Galatians. Like, we have the big boys, right? Philemon. But Philemon tells us how the Bible works. Jesus doesn't even go in after slavery, right? You can be a red letter Christian and just live off the words of Jesus. You still won't get to kind of an anti-slavery position. So reading the Bible as a story of redemptive movement means God takes time seriously. He takes human history seriously as a process and he's not gonna artificially intervene and create a people you know, 1,000 years before the birth of the Messiah that has no slavery, that treats men and women as equals, that is not violent, that would be unreal in that world. And God doesn't work through the unreal. Because he is committed to working in time and working with us and changing things over time. This is just what we get from Jesus' parables about how the kingdom comes. It grows like a seed, right? It's like dough rising.
This is how God's kingdom works in our world. Because, why is that? Because God takes our world seriously and the people who live in it and the people who live in time have to work things out over time with him. That's the way the story goes. Number four, the Bible is a story full of time. Therefore, there are different kinds of time. You know, there's a lot made about this distinction between chronos and kairos and these different words for time. And it's, it's good as far as it goes. This idea of um, kairos moments, right, which I've heard used over the years by various people, we need to understand that, like I always hear them in these like amazingly beautiful, spiritual, positive ways, which is true and good. I mean, that, that is in the, the scriptures. But we need to understand that those kairos moments can also apply to this is just the right moment. This is just the time for judgment, right? These kairos moments aren't all like the good stuff. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the First Testament, uses kairos to talk about, now is the time for me to bring my wrath upon you, Israel. So it's not just the perfect moment for Jesus to be born. I mean, it is, right, where the time had fully come. It's also, this is just the right moment for discipline for you. This is just the right time for exile for you. Generations of Israelites lived before the Exodus generation, right? What about their suffering and dying in slavery? Think about the people who died when Jerusalem was overrun or the people who went to Babylon and then they died, right? God is saying, look, you have a long time out. So my son works for the National Hockey League and it's so funny, he has four little kids and in their house, he used to run the penalty box in the Avalanche home games. And so in their house, they have an actual space called the penalty box and it has the words written on it. So when I babysit them, which is a challenging thing for an older man to do with four little kids at once, but I make good use of the penalty box, right? <laughs> like, okay, Jessa, you go there and there's nothing for them to do. They have to sit there until like the door is opened and they can come out just like in a hockey game. So, so they know all about that and I think, what God is saying to Israel sometimes is, this is the time for you to sit it out, right? You are getting put in the penalty box and timeouts. I mean, it's an essential part of God's program and there's something about time there. I mean, if you, live, if you were a, a Jewish person between the Testaments, I mean, the end of the period of prophecy to the birth of the Messiah, right? The Greeks, the Syrians, the Romans, like one oppressor after another. And, and these people, right? They're just like, they keep trying. We get this picture, I love this, at the beginning of the New Testament. Anna, whose husband died early, she's a widow, and she goes to the temple praying, right? Lamenting every single day for the Messiah to come, for God to come and redeem his people. And she gets to see it. She can't believe it. She's, she's like, what, 84 years old or something crazy? I mean, but think about the generations before Anna who, who, who lived like that, but never saw it. So, th so there's a thing with time where even hard, bad times have to be given their space. Like there's some reason, and I don't think we know it, why God chooses a certain time to 
finally bring his redemption, right? It tests our ability to believe in his redemption when it goes on and on without it. And think about how many, I think I hear a lot of narratives in, in the Christian world about, you know, you're gonna have a hard time, but God will show up and he will heal you. He will restore you. Whatever's gone wrong, God is gonna make it better. And we think like this cycle has to do, be true in every individual life. And it's just not true. Sometimes there are things that are more than people can bear, and then they die, right? I think of the story of Tamar in the Bible, like the second Tamar, right? The princess, the, the daughter of King David. I mean, have you ever really read that story? I mean, it leads to, it leads to huge disaster in David's kingdom, right? The battle between his sons, um, murders that go like undealt with, um, crimes like rape, against a sister, it goes undealt with by David. Huge mistake. But the, the last thing we read about Tamar, I mean, Absalom, his sister, who then rebels against David, names one of his daughters Tamar. But after Tamar is raped and then so crazy, right? Amnon says, I love her so much, it's driving me crazy. And then as soon as he's raped her, he says, like, I hate you, get out of here. Like, what is this? I mean, she's living under patriarchy and the consequences are real, right? This is the thing, like, he can go on his merry way and be the prince of King David and have all the, the privilege and benefits of that. Her life is done. So the last word we have about Tamar, she lived in Absalom's house, a desolate woman. Like, no restoration, no, like, I'm gonna make this right. David doesn't deal with it. She, and just think about it. Like, she can't, she can't do or be anything anymore in that culture. So I think there's all these stories of people who didn't see what they were promised. In fact, it's explicit in the book of Hebrews, in that great chapter on the heroes of the faith. You know what it says at the end of that chapter? All of these died without having received what was promised. So that only together with us, will they find the salvation and the hope that they were really waiting for? That's amazing, right? That's a time thing. Like they lived and died and believed God and they never received what was promised. So we gotta quit telling people, God is gonna make this right in your lifetime. He may, he does amazing like things to restore people, but that isn't always the case. It is not the case. It's not the case in the scriptures and it's not the case in real life. Right, here's one, Psalm 44. Gotta keep track of my time. Um, but this Psalm is amazing. I don't know if you were here like four years ago. I'm thinking that most of you didn't go to that session that I did on the architecture of the Psalms. But there's kind of a neat thing in the Psalms about how not just the words, but the way the songs are built, which is why architecture is the right word, are part of the message. So Psalm 44 is built like an ancient ziggurat. You know what those are? Those stepped temples where there was an altar or a place to meet with the gods at the top. So you had to climb these steps. They were made to be like artificial mountains because it was always believed that you, when you were on the mountains, you were closer to the gods. So ziggurats were made as kind of ancient temple shrine things. And so Psalm 44 is built like a ziggurat. So the first stanza is 10 lines, 10 couplets really, like Hebrew parallelism, always built in couplets. So the first one has 10, the second one has eight, 
The third one has six. And the last one has four. And, and the four, when you get to the end, like, that's what he really wants to say to God. The rest of it is like, like getting God into a place where he will do the right thing when I really tell him what I want to say. Right? Like, it's, it's an argument for God saying, okay, God, here's the deal. First, the first 10, like, all, all great. God, all we've been hearing about since I was a youth was how great you are, and now you saved our ancestors, you established them, you gave them the land. Like, it's all good. So we know you're able. Second stanza, um, I don't know if you've been watching, but we're in huge trouble right now. <laughs> right? And there is this theme in, out, throughout this psalm, like, I don't know if you've been paying attention. They were not afraid to talk to God like that. So, uh, we're in real trouble. Third stanza. By the way, we've been good. We are faithful people to your covenant. So uh, maybe you're paying attention and thinking you're punishing us, but, but there's no need because we have been faithful people to your covenant. So we're good, right? We know you're able. So therefore, the top of the psalm, the top of the shrine, this is so amazing. Here's how it is in the message. Get up, God. Are you going to sleep all day? Wake up. Don't you care what happens to us? Why do you bury your face in the pillow? Why pretend things are just fine with us? Here we are, flat on our faces in the dirt, held down with a boot on our necks. Get up and come to our rescue. If you love us so much, help us. Wow. And I... This is not just Eugene Peterson. Like, read it in your ESV or your NIV. I mean, it is super strong. And I'm like, it's in the Bible. And God, like, this is God's word, right? Like, it's modeling for us what we're supposed to do when we are really in dire straits. Like, when we are really in trouble, like, we need to, like, the author is saying, look, climb the steps of the ziggurat with me. And then we'll pray this prayer together at the top. And we will tell God what he's supposed to be doing. And I think, I've, I've, the other thing I need to talk about here in relationship to time is we, I hear this occasionally, like the purpose of prayer is really to change us. Right? Like it's to change us. Like we don't, God, God is God. He's outside of time. He has a perfect plan. So our prayers don't really need to change God. And I'm like, so is this an authentic relationship or what, what is this actually? Like it's only to change us so that we will accept God's plan no matter what it is. And I think that is not what I see in the scriptures. The scriptures say when, when Yahweh comes down and appears to Moses, you know what he says? He says, I've been listening to my people and their desperate cries under slavery have caught my ear. Therefore, I'm coming down to rescue them. Earlier in the book, it, it makes a point of it. There's a whole paragraph about the cries of the people of Israel in their slavery. So those prayers to God, according to the text of Exodus, are the reason why he came down to save them. So I think Anna's prayers and laments in the temple, the cries of the people in slavery, um, I wish we had a psalm by Tamar, right? What would that be, to read a psalm of Tamar, a psalm of lament? Um, I think God hears those.
and it moves him to action, right? The book of Revelation, the end of the Bible, it ends with these desperate prayers. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And I, th I think, you know, there's a, like a prophecy subset of people who pray that a lot, right? I have some of that in my family. But I think a lot of the mainstream church like doesn't really pray that. Like we're not, we're not like urgent with God, talking to him like the end of Psalm 44 and telling him to hurry up and get here. And I, th I think we don't think like he's got it all perfectly planned. So what, it, what that idea, if you take that too far, and I grew up in a Dutch reformed church. So we were all about sovereignty and God is in control. I mean, it's reformed theology, right? So I know that stuff. But the danger if you take reformed sovereignty theology too far is it leads to passivity. It leads to lack of engagement with the world and with God. Like we think it's not a real relationship. Prayer is changing us. It's like we're just talking to the ceiling and it's coming back and it's gonna change me because I got it out to God, but now I'm gonna accept whatever he does, even if my five-year-old child dies of leukemia, right? No, it's real. Like the struggles in the world are real and God, I mean, it's a living drama. God wants to be in the story with us and he wants us to be active players. We're not puppets where he's pulling strings and is just executing his perfect plan. He's, he wants, he created space in the world, time and space for us to be players in his drama and, and he will do things. I mean, are these stories of Moses and Abraham negotiating with God, like is that just totally fake, right? Like, God says to Moses like, okay, like we just got started, but I've had it with these people and I'm gonna destroy them. I'm gonna start over like with your family or something. Like I need a new plan. And Moses has to talk God down. Like, don't do that. You know what people will say about you if you do that? Like you're not able to do, like what kind of weak God are you? You can't even like save your own people and get them through the desert, right? I mean, it's like, are these fake conversations? Like the, the, the God that the Bible gives us is a God who expects us to engage with him authentically over time in all the different times that are in the Bible, times of grief, times of lament, right? Times of sorrow, times of exile, and, and pray for God's redemption to come to this world. That's what the Bible models for us. By the way, the, we're, tonight we're gonna sing Great is Thy Faithfulness. You know where that comes from? The book of Lamentations, right? Gorgeous, right? You know where that comes in the book of Lamentations? Lamentations is five full songs of lament. Just grief and brokenness about what, what has happened to Jerusalem. There's just like a few lines about God's faithfulness. They come in the middle of the middle song of lament. So we're the place, like again, Bible authors are structuring things like to make sense and to give them extra power. I think you don't have any right to sing that song or to quote those verses, great is thy faithfulness, new every morning. Like you shouldn't even be allowed to read that until you read all five songs of lament, right? Read the whole thing. Read, they're not that long. They're all built on some kind of acrostic pattern of Hebrew alphabet, but just read them and get the pain and the suffering. And then those words become 10 times more powerful. Yes. 10 times more powerful if you read them in context. The middle of the middle song is the only place there's like a, the light of hope for the future shining into the world when everything around them has been completely devastated. So 
there are moments in the Bible that call for lament, and there are moments like festivals that call for praising for the things God did and the memory and the belief that he'll do it again. So a God of time is a God of all different kinds of time. And the Bible says, give each one his due. Don't cut it short. Some Christians are like, have this like prosperity gospel of the emotions thing going on. Like if you're not relentlessly happy, <laughs> right? Relentlessly positive, then like we question your faith. Like if, if like this, you don't believe in, like how strong is your faith? Are you struggling with your faith because you're depressed? You're sad, you're broken, you're angry. And the Bible says, away with that. Like give space to be real humans, the whole range of emotions. But in faith, you're not just like ranting. You're not being self-indulgent in your pain and suffering. You are bringing it to the God that you believe in. That's what, even when the strongs of lament are their strongest, right? This attitudinal language toward God, we're like, whoa. I have a hard time saying that to God. But even at their strongest, they're based in faith and trust that God is the one who can do something. You're bringing it to God. So this is a huge way to think about time in the Bible. I'm not gonna make it through all these. This is, this is trouble. All right, the next one. I think we're all the way up to page four now. Number five, the Bible is a story full of time. Therefore, there is prophetic hope. So the prophets in Israel, who were the ones who brought the bad news to Israel about, look, you are, you are like, you can't stop being covenant breakers. You're like incorrigible covenant breakers. So therefore, God is gonna have to give you this long time out. But they are also the ones who give us this great and glorious vision of the future. And you know how that's always referenced? With time. In that day, those prophecies begin. At that time, when Yahweh returns as king, it's when, it's in that day, at that time. All time references. So the time, when the time is right, God will come. And we have to realize like centuries are going by and he's not showing up. And some people are like, you know, we might as well be Greeks or Romans, right? Josephus was, a, was an, a, an officer in the Jewish army. And he's like, you know, God has gone over to the Romans based on all the evidence I've seen. I think he's not the God of the Jews anymore. He's the God of the Romans. And so I'm switching sides. So it's hard to keep believing when the time doesn't come. But we have the words of prophetic hope. Jeremiah 29, 11, according to um, Bible Gateway and version, the most popular verse in the entire world, right? They surveyed countries around the world. Number one was Jeremiah 29, 11. The, the verse is kind of like, you know, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. Kind of a <laughs> passage, right? That's the way, and I'm like, like if you just read a few sentences before and after, it's written to a letter to exiles and what God is going to do for them, right? I have a hope and a future for you, right? Well, I just wanna say, did you have a hope and a future for Tamar, for the people who died in Babylon? I mean, it's like, we have to quit individualizing and it's an American thing, right? It's individual and it's relentlessly positive. Like, it's interesting to me that none of the curses of Deuteronomy, right at the end of the book, are ever showing up on a wall plaque, like with a scene of like Glen Erie in the background, right? Like 
if you don't turn around, I am gonna come and destroy you. You will go everywhere and people will be chasing you. Your plants won't grow. It's always these positive, relentlessly positive verses that we wanna take out of context. But when we read the prophetic hope in context, you know, even during these periods of long silence and long waiting, like the story is still moving. You know that period between the Testaments? Like some really important things happened in Judaism there. Apocalyptic literature developed, which became a thing in the New Testament. Jesus used apocalyptic in his Olivet Discourse about, about what's gonna happen to Jerusalem. The whole book of Revelation is an apocalypse. Well, that comes from this intertestamental period. The other thing is like the whole doctrine of angels, like came into its own in this intertestamental period. And so I think, you know, it's worth our while to read those books. Just because the Judaism that Jesus was born into was the Judaism that came out of that period. It doesn't end with Malachi, right? The Juda Judaism kept moving and, and developing ideas. And that's the Judaism that Jesus was born into as a second temple Jew. And so we need to know that literature just so we understand Jesus and the apostles better. Because that's why the New Testament is the way it is. The, the opening, have you ever wondered about the opening of the book of Hebrews? Like, what's up with the angels? Like, he's, there, he goes on and on and on about how the sun is better and higher than the angels. We're like, okay, yeah, we get it. Like, what else do you have? Right? But he keeps saying that. And he keeps going. Because in Judaism, the role of angels as mediators between heaven and earth became a huge thing. And it actually became the, the development of what is such a huge idea in the New Testament, which we neglect also, is the doctrine of the powers and principalities. Um, I actually did a talk during the COVID year at, here on where the wild things are um, about the role of the powers in the New Testament. Huge deal that, again, we have largely written out of the script unless you might be a Pentecostal. They still talk about the powers. Um, but most of Christianity like doesn't even deal with that and I think in a world like ours like the powers and principalities like it's huge deal and we need to know what the New Testament says about that so another thing that developed between the Testaments was a Jewish reckoning of time and that is they became standard to talk about this age and the age to come that became the go-to language in the intertestamental period for how to think about God what God's doing in the world so that prophetic hope we talked about in that day, at that time, God is gonna come, he's gonna restore, he's gonna judge, he's gonna destroy evil, he's gonna make the world what he, what he meant it to be. The Jews said, yep, that's this age. Paul calls it this present evil age and the age to come. So to talk about God's future is not so much to talk about a new place, like going to heaven when we die, it's talking about God's new time. Same place, new time. We need, to, we need to defeat everything that's going wrong in this present evil age and get to the age to come. Number six, the Bible story is full of time. Therefore, God sent Jesus the Messiah to fully enter our time. This is like unbelievable, right? It's one thing for God to say, okay, you know, all you creatures down there, I made this place for you. It's got time and place together. They're woven together in the creation. You can't be in the creation without experiencing time. Um, and that's you guys, right? If you're a Greek, you're like, yeah, I'm above time, outside of time. Time doesn't apply to me. 
but it's good for you guys. Even if you have this, which I think is not a biblical view of God, I think it's a mystery that we, we can't say a whole lot about. He's clearly above time and you know, time is a different thing for God, there's no question. But do we realize that the incarnation is God, not just becoming like human in a body, but entering time forever? Right, he's in time now. And just like when he was raised from the dead and ascended, he didn't lose his body. We have a human in the heavenly realms, a human body made of the stuff of earth, raised from the earth, ascended into heaven, and it's the beginning of the reunification of heaven and earth. And time, Jesus is in time. Right, after his ascension, he like appears to Paul, he comes like back into our time and says, hey, what are you doing? You're persecuting me. Because you're persecuting my body, my believers, my followers, you are persecuting me. And you don't get to get, you think you're all zealous for God, you need to get squared away on this because you're doing the wrong thing. You're not serving God, you're persecuting me. And so Jesus is in time and he's still with us in the story. He's continuing in the story with us. And so there's a sense in which, like this is, like the early Christians, you can't overstate how important the coming of Jesus into time was for their reckoning of things. Everything, like not just Jewish history, world history turned on that moment, right? So the medieval, the, the early medieval period got it right when they said it's before Christ and in the year of our Lord, right? The time is divided by this moment when the eternal one entered our time and for good. I mean, you know what, they, as, the way, as they say it now, God has skin in the game. It's not just about him being nice to us. Jesus is fully human. By the way, there's a whole other thing we should do about Jesus and lament, which we don't tell when we tell his story. Jesus was a lamenter. We knew this from Isaiah in the servant songs that he was going to be uh, a man of grief. But there's laments in the New Testament stories which we rarely deal with. The, the weeping of Jesus, his crying over Jerusalem. I mean, not the death of Lazarus, but Jerusalem. I mean, Jesus is experiencing the pain and grief of the world via lament as an essential part of his ministry because this is the time of lament for Jesus. The time of victory and celebration will come later, but he is not, I mean, he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead and he knew it, right? He knew what was gonna happen, but he's in the moment fully and he sees his sisters crying, he sees the people, and he's human and he weeps. He weeps and then he raises him from the dead, right? I mean, that means taking time seriously. Like, it's not the time for celebration when it's the time for lament. Like, don't rush it. Like, enter into it. That's what God, that's what Jesus shows us within the story of the Bible. I don't know, how am I doing for time, by the way? I'm running out quickly, right? Okay, so Jesus, how does he announce his ministry? He says, the time has fully come, therefore repent. Like the kingdom of God is upon you, now is the time. And this word now becomes a huge word in the New Testament. Paul will write to the Corinthians, now is the time of salvation. This is the time for new creation to begin. So there's this breaking up of the present evil age and what Jesus did and what the, the apostles did with this, this Jewish thing about this age and the, the age to come, the New Testament says, 
The coming of Jesus is the beginning. It's the inauguration of the age to come. But the strange thing, the thing that no Jew was expecting, is that the present evil age would continue past the coming of the Messiah. They're like, what? So we're new creation people in a world still filled with death and rebellion? I mean, we're, we live in this overlap of the ages, which is one of the big surprises of the New Testament. So that's one thing we have to get squared away in our heads about time, is that we live in between. We are living the future in a world that is still living the present evil age, the old way of living, the way of sin and death. And we are the people who are supposed to show them what the new time looks like. We are to be a community of the new time. We are not bound by the loyalties and biases and ideologies of the old time. That's not who we answer to. We answer to the king of the new time, and that's where we live. There's much more to say about that. Read the Gospel of John. I wish I could read all these passages I have here, but it's amazing how time, right? Now, he says to his mother, now is not my hour, right? They try to arrest him. He goes, it's not my hour. And then right before he's killed, it's like, it's my hour. So there's time references throughout the entire Gospel of John, which you need to read. Number seven, the Bible story is full of time. Therefore, we already live the future in the midst of an ongoing present evil age. This is the already not yet that theologians talk about. Um, together with the First Testament saints, we are looking for the time when the new age will become complete. And finally, number eight, which is a good biblical number, Seven is the number of completion. The early Christians talked about an eighth and eternal day that comes, it's like the eternal Sabbath that comes after the seven day Sabbath. The eighth day is a new and eternal Sabbath. So I'm just saying, eight's a good number. <laughs> the Bible story is full of time. Therefore, we look forward to the full existence of the new time. When the time comes, when we consistently keep crying out to God in our times of grief and loss, God will bring the new time that heals and restores. And like Psalm 90 says, which we'll read this evening, he will give us back as many years as we have suffered. He will give us back good years, right? So I'm thinking of my five-year-old neighbor, Jonathan, who died of leukemia. He spent half of his life five years of his short life, fighting leukemia, getting a bone marrow transplant. He was in pain, and then he died. I'm like, that kid never got a chance to live. So God needs to, like, what did God intend for him when he was born? The Creator intends for people to live and flourish and to be, like, experience the full benefits of his creation. We need to pray that God will restore to us all the time we have lost that people have lost, right? So that God can like, and I think he's gonna do that and more, but he needs to start with at least that. As long as I have suffered, you need to give me back time of non-suffering that at least equals that, and then we'll see what else he'll do. I'm sure it will be amazing. One last thing for artists, um, the end of the book of Revelation, right? It says the kings of the earth will bring their glory into the new Jerusalem. So your artwork might like dissipate and break down like Heidi was talking about this morning. But I say the best of this world, right? They say you can't take it with you. I'm like, I don't know. I think artists might be able to take it with them because it says in the text, like they will bring their glory, the good things from their work and their culture, 
Like, find a home in the new Jerusalem. I'm like, wait a minute. Like, that's, that's, besides, we think it's just massive discontinuity between this world and the world to come. The Bible says, I mean, Paul ends his, his letter to the, to the Corinthians talking about the resurrection. And then he says, that's why your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Because there's continuity as well as discontinuity. Some things will stay the same and you can bring them into my new world if they're good things. So I, I don't believe everything is gonna be destroyed and burned up. I think the best of our work makes it into God's new world because that's the way the story ends. But I'm out of time, I gotta go. See ya, thank you. been listening to a podcast of the Anselm Society in Colorado Springs. Our mission is a renaissance of the Christian imagination. We exist to help Christians remember who they are, to cultivate a deep awareness of their relationship to the great story, and to bring that awareness home to their families and churches. To find out more about us or to become a patron, please visit anselmsociety.org. Thanks for listening.